Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, welcome to the 368th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Alexander Terentiev, Autumn Harmon, and Steve Goot. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Warren Kaplan. And today we have Justin Lerner back on the pod. He hasn't been on since episode 31. This is episode 368. This is insane. 337 episodes. Boy, what is time? Yeah. And he's got a new movie and Matt and I have seen some clips from it. And it is pretty amazing. Pretty impressive. Pretty cool. He shot the whole thing in Guatemala he came up with the whole idea. He went there. He did a ton of research on the Guatemalan gangs and teens. And it's a crazy story because he is, uh, if you look at him, he is just like a, a dude from L.A. <laughs> that looks like you would never expect him to make this movie. It's awesome. It feels super authentic and real and like almost docu-style, except for it's not shot docu-style. But um, Cadejo Blanco, it's cool. I think it's going to be in theaters uh, the day after this episode comes out. April 21st. So uh, if you're in LA, you can see it in theaters, but, uh, but you can go to Cadejo, C-A-D-E-J-O film.com potentially. At, at least you can go to Cadejo film on Instagram and get the info about what's going on with it. We're barely going to talk right now because it's a really long episode and it, it was a really long conversation and I don't think there's much for us to cut out of it. And Justin gave really some awesome advice about how he thinks filmmakers should come up with the movies that they should make and then also how to work with non-actors and actors and get authentic performances. And it's really cool. I think this is my favorite Justin Lerner interview we've done to date. Well, I re-listened to episode 31. It was pretty strong too. Um, <laughs> you did not. You've never heard the podcast. It's a real treat to talk to Justin. We're old pals. So it's nice to have him back on the show to learn about all the different things that he has learned and the ways that he's grown as a filmmaker. It's pretty rad. Without any further delay, let's talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Just Shoot a Pod is the place where you can go to support us, throw us a couple bucks. We've got some new expenses coming up. Podcast hosting is getting weirdly expensive. Anyway, so the point is there's some more hosting fees, all that stuff. The money that you are putting into the show goes directly into the pockets of the people who make it i'm talking about noah i'm talking about the wonderful websites that host all of this stuff we're just keeping the show going if it wasn't for you and our patrons we would have stopped 332 episodes ago yes also our last hat has been purchased i don't know what the word is when you do it through patreon but 
uh, at the $20 level, you get a hat. So for the next person that gives us $20, Matt and I are going to make a whole new design. Our friend Grant, who was uh, created that show alone and he was on the podcast uh, earlier, he has a new show on Netflix called Outlast. And he gave me a hat and it just says Outlast in white letters, mm-hmm. very simple font. And I was like, just shoot it. I think that's it without the podcast part. I think it'll almost, it'll be like a cool, I, I think small type, uh-huh. just shoot it. Uh-huh. Um, and cool. And maybe we can even Embroidered like, though still, but not, not the Nike font. For no, listeners like maybe, who never took took the time to, to take a look at the hats, they were in the, the just do it font, basically. Yeah. No, I think like real simple and maybe like a new material, maybe like a, like a fabric, like cotton or like some denim type. Oh, I don't you, know, something cool. You're talking, I don't know. you're talking about a dad hat. Oh, God. Everything I do is dad, dad but related. All you are sudden. talking about a dad hat. Outlast, he has like a black hat with white writing and he also has a camo hat with orange writing and it's pretty cool actually. Lost me, lost me, heart no. I mean, no, of course no. I would lose you, but I yeah. promise you, listeners, write us, write to us, just shoot it pod at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about a camo hat that says just shoot it on it. You could talk me into a bucket hat before you could talk me into a camo hat. I know, but it's like, it's like... I'm just saying that camo has gotten so disgusting that it's it's come around and now it's pretty cool again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, let us know what sort of hats you'd be interested in. And go to patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. If you're a designer, hey, pitch us something. By all means. If we use your design, we'll give you a free well, hat. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, let's hop into our conversation with Justin Lerner about his new film, Cadejo Blanco. 
He's also a teacher. We're on, back on with Justin Lerner. How did you know? With name puns, with the top of the show. <laughs> with dad number one. It's It's been <laughs> a long right. time since episode 31. We're literally 10 times that many episodes. Yeah. I was banned for many years, it seems like. <laughs> you were not you know what you did. You know what you did, <laughs> You Justin. do know what you did. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> for listeners who uh, haven't listened to all 300. 320 episodes since then. Justin is an old pal, and we met... Uh, a couple different ways, but uh, primarily because we were neighbors across the hall from one another for like a decade. I have a terrier. She's seven now, but we adopted her around the time of uh, getting to know Matt, right? Like probably around the time the last podcast came out. And uh, because Matt and Chrissy, his wife, had great parties and my dog is obsessed with food, she was hardwired that anytime Matt's door was open, she'd sneak across the hall and just present herself inside Matt's apartment. Yeah. Uh, so much so that I would sometimes just uh, assume she was over there if I couldn't find. <laughs> and yeah. then uh, uh, I, I emailed Oren a few weeks later saying, you know what? Every time my dog sneaks over to try to eat Matt and Chrissy's food, I see they really like my dog. Matt and Chrissy should get a dog. And I, I sent, I actually uh, did one of those. You guys have like a, uh, like a user, like a listener line or, or email. Sure, and I wrote like, like, voice I wrote, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I wrote, Hey guys, do you think Matt would ever, and Chrissy would ever um, uh, consider getting a dog? And you literally wrote back to me, man, you know, we love dogs, but it's just so much responsibility and, and I'm traveling so much for work. And then you go and have a baby, which is totally much less responsibility. Sure. And I was just thinking like, okay, now I'm the one with the dog and no baby. And you're the one with the baby and no dog. Is that the only way we met? Is that we lived across the hall or was there another way? Well, and then you were in the director's group. That right. I, that, so like that was kind of the other aspect. That's how you and Oren know each other is through yeah, like this old director's Kisnex group. group. Yeah, With yeah, Eric Kissack's so. director group that we yeah, all used yeah, to yeah. go to back in the day. Yeah. That's how I met Laura Davis. And that's how I met Carlin and, sure. and all, yeah. of, all of your pals, Tim, all of your pals. Yeah. So since uh, uh, 300 episodes uh, and some change ago, you were there with the automatic hate. Uh, and now you've got your new feature out, Cadejo Blanco. Did I get it right? Very good. Yeah, I'll take that. That's, that's a very good gringo pronunciation. <laughs> Cadejo Blanco. How do you um, pronounce it? Yeah, yeah. How should, how should someone say it correctly? Cadejo Blanco. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. All right. But I mean, universe. Uh, Totally. I've heard it butchered all over. And uh, that's why they changed the name in, in a few countries. You know, we, uh, what oh, is it uh, in the U.S. though? It's Cadejo Blanco. Right? Yes. Yes. But we're coming out in a few months in France and they just changed the name totally to just undercover uh, infiltrate, <laughs> which is mm. a great, great title. They're doing like the more crime thriller aspect of it. And um, mm -hmm. uh, they called it White Guardian in Estonia. Um, they kept the uh, title in all Spanish speaking countries, but the thing is a Cadejo only has significance in Central America, in Mexico, where we had our international premiere. Uh, uh, no one knew what a Cadejo was. And I had to explain it at the first question on well, every Q&A. Well, yeah. Do tell, explain what a Cadejo uh, is. So it's a Guatemalan myth or legend, part of their folklore. And it's like an animal that looks like a white wolf, but it's actually more of like a spirit or guardian angel that protects, mm. uh, people 
from evil or death or leads them to it, depending on if you believe in the good one or the bad one. In Guatemala, the best, they have very, there's different versions of the legend depending on where in Central America you are. So El Salvador has a different one than say Costa Rica. In Guatemala, it's there these, there's these, there these savage wolf-like dogs that roam the streets, especially at night when you get out of the bar. And if you see one walking next to you, it's because it's it's protecting you from getting mugged um, for drunkards to like when they get out of the bar, get home safely. Uh, but but it, it has a lot of uh, significance in in the spiritual world of mythology and, and, and folklore in Guatemala. And uh, I named it that after I had written it and was almost ready to shoot because of the significance of of that animal and that character in Guatemalan culture. But um, only because. I think it was a cool metaphor for the film and what the girl's journey is. It there, there, there. Spoiler: There are some dogs in the film, but um, the film's not about these dogs at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, but they're everywhere. You see wild dogs on the street in Guatemala, everywhere you go, and in the woods. So it's a very much a part of the experience of hanging out in Guatemala. So I just thought to make it more Guatemalan, it would be cool to add this, like this part of their culture and their 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 folklore. Cool, man. Well, well, before we go uh, deeper in, because we've got a lot of big questions, but like, just give us the the pitch, the logline. Tell us what Cadeo Blanco is about. Sure. It's a, uh, it's a first of all, it's a U.S., uh, Guatemala, Mexico co-production um, shot all in Guatemala, mostly in, in this little Caribbean town in the northeast uh, called Puerto Barrios. But it's about a, a working class girl from the capital city, Guatemala City who gets in a fight with her sister uh, one night out at a bar and uh, turns out that she's been dating a dangerous guy. She go after the fight. She never comes home that night. And the, the older sister goes on a week long trek uh, looking for what happened to her sister who's gone missing and has to basically infiltrate a gang in this small town on the Caribbean coast of Guatemala in order to figure out what happened. So she actually goes through the motions of, joining the gang and getting really good at all the stuff in it, uh, risking her life every scene, every moment she could die at any moment, all to try to figure out and get revenge for whatever happened. And in, in addition to this kind of cool crime story, the meta narrative behind all of this is that these are non-actors. They're some of them are actual gang members. Just kind of give us the production yeah. background a tiny bit as well. Yeah, that, that makes it a much longer pitch. So I was going to wait. But yeah, since you mentioned it. So the film was developed over three or four years of, um, I'd say, the most intense uh, prep, rehearsal investigative journalism almost uh, period of, of research in which I basically spent almost, yeah, almost four years. I'd say like three, three and change meeting kids from these small Guatemalan uh, disorganized gangs called clicas, uh, kids in the neighborhood and a couple older people who had left these gangs and uh, developed a script with them uh, in which they helped me write it. Uh, they developed, we developed their dialogue. And in the end, the ones who did want to participate in the filming, I invited many of my research subjects to actually play versions of themselves, fictionalized a little bit, uh, over the course of many, many years of rehearsing and interviews and having to replace cast members who either went missing or worse, or decided that they weren't interested anymore or got scared. 
And uh, yeah, so it was a very um, open-ended kind of living document, the script and then Mm -hmm. the finished film that kept getting rewritten continually, uh, always deferring to the people in it to allow them to represent themselves in the film, where I was just kind of, I knew what the story was and we worked it out together, but scene by scene, anytime they wanted to change something, they were the boss. So it was a real interesting collaboration between real people and about, I'd say a half a dozen professional actors who we mixed in with Mm -hmm. the the non-professional cast to make this, this kind of crime thriller. Yeah. And and just out of curiosity, was your lead one of the professional actors or? Yes. yes. Karen, Karen Martinez is a professional actress that actually has, was found on the streets uh, for her first feature film that she acted in called La Jale de Oro, which came out in 2013. She was just found in a street casting by one of my executive producers, Pamela Guinea, who was working on the casting on that film um, with Brandon Lopez, who also uh, appears in the movie as the only professional actor in the gang in the movie. Mm-hmm. And um, she, over the course of that film, did training with the City of God uh, acting coach named Fatima Toledo. And uh, that film actually is the most award-winning Latin American film of all time. It premiered at Cannes in 2013. And the three leads, including Karen and Brendan, won a certain talent award at at Cannes for their performances. So since that point, they are now professional actors, but they they started as Mm non-professionals. Uh, gotcha. The way that all of the the like eighty percent of my cast is, so I really don't think I would have been able to make it without her. <laughs> she <laughs> she is in every scene and in every moment she's playing at least three different characters. Meaning she's mm-hmm. a girl from the city pretending to be a different girl, pretending to be a gang member who's looking, mm-hmm. you know, and and that all she's has to read on her face. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah it's complicated. And it all has to read on her face without ever saying anything like big she had to be yeah. so subtle and, and she's so, always like almost yeah like you said like <laughs> on the verge of being killed but trying to pretend like she fits in mm-hmm. um yeah and also and, acting that <laughs> on yeah. set with cameras and lights <laughs> yeah yeah with a bunch of people who she just met and she's been helping um act in front of the camera and get comfortable in front of the camera who never acted before a lot of these i mean people that's kind of cool that she's like a leader in the situation where mm-hmm. her character is is not is, so is following everyone. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of the girl who plays play. her little sister had never acted before and was it was so she's great, but she's just who she is in the film. So in between takes, Karen was helping her so much because I'm dealing with a lot as mm-hmm. directing something in a different language. Um, a lot's going on. We're shooting it very fast and. And Karen and Brandon, the the male actor who's the professional, who pl- he's the curly haired guy in the gang. You mm-hmm, might have mm-hmm. noticed he um, he's the only not uh, the only professional in the gang, and he wait. He, so the boss of the the other gang, the drug dealer, he's not a professional actor. Oh, the big guy, the older guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, he's a non professional. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. Really great. Yeah. We, we uh, did the thing that happened with the gang members is that I ended up trying to find some in the city, like theater actors, and they were doing the whole like shtick mm-hmm. the way that you would see someone pretend to be a gang member in a bad TV show. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, I'm not making this movie. I'm not going to have the lead kid or the main boss be one of these guys. I want it to be real because my experience in my in my research of this is that the people who are in these gangs are not 
bad people. And I know that's kind of weird to say because a lot of them commit a lot of crimes. They rob some of them. Some of the people I met during my research period have probably killed people. You know, there's things like that. I mean, um, I don't, we, I don't know for sure because I don't ask those kind of things when doing my research, but I'm, I would say that the people that I met while doing my research are kids who are literally looking for either a family because they don't have one, a way to protect mm -hmm. their family or extra money because uh, money's hard to come by. And on the weekends, they are just kids like my nieces and nephews back in Boston. You know, mm -hmm. the only difference is that these kids from like 15 to 25, they just were born in the diff a different place with a different context. And so when I started meeting these kids, even before I had the idea of making the film, I just, I just realized like, if I'm going to do anything, it has to show this. Cause I have never seen gang life and people in who live in this like level of poverty and crime. Um, I've never seen it represented this way. I've never seen it mm -hmm. shown where they are not evil. They are not, they're not mm -hmm. these like tattoo faced demons. Sure. They are just yeah. kids. And, and I thought if I'm going to do right by, you know, the story and actually showing their lives, one, I'm going to have to cast as many who want to trust me to participate, to play versions of themselves. And the second thing is I'm going to have to show a different take on it than I've seen in all these movies before. So you have these movies like Sicario and you have these movies mm -hmm. like, and they show a different side that I wasn't interested in telling because I've seen that so many times. And I was like, what can I offer new to this, this genre of film? And I thought, oh, well, here it is. This was mm -hmm. the only part of the world that I, or only part of Latin America where women can join the gangs and like, be more than just either a prostitute or a drug dealer. They can have a gun. They can actually participate in a lot of the things that mm -hmm. men are typically uh, given jobs for in these gangs. And I thought, well, I've never seen that either. I've never seen a gang there where women can also be mm -hmm. really integral parts of the gang. So for me, it was more just finding the real people and knowing that if I'm going to do this, I have to approach it more like a documentary and less like a scripted movie with theater actors. And yeah, there are a few professional actors, but, but I was really trying at all points. If I could find someone who was a real person, mm -hmm. like real person, you know, non-professional, <laughs> everybody's a real person, a non-professional. Um, I tried to, because I thought that that was something that I could offer that maybe other films couldn't. If I'm not mistaken by my math, you are a white guy. Yes. Jewish guy Half. that lives in LA. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you, you know, a guy and I'm guessing late thirties, maybe, you know? Sure. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> and so somehow you, you know, you, you touched a little bit on this research you did in all these kids you met in Guatemala and their lives, but like, how did you even like get to the situation where you're in Guatemala talking to these kids um, and like coming up and you made a movie about a teenage girl in Guatemala, you know, a lot of money in Guatemala in a different language. And like all of which I am not, I am not a teenage right. girl in Guatemala. I am not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, I guess the, the subtext, not the subtext, but like the, the, some context for the question is, did you, were you looking for a story that felt like it hasn't been told by people like you before? I wasn't looking for a story that hasn't been told by people like me. I was just looking for something that I could I could tell a story I could tell that no one else could like a one of one. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll explain why, because of course anyone could tell a story like this, but I'll explain. I think a lot of filmmakers don't think about it in this way, 
but a lot of what gets you to get the next level or someone to give you money to make a film is what you have access to that other people don't have, whether mm -hmm. that's a story, an actor, a community of, of people that will only deal with you or some insight that you have or some secret that you know. So rewind a little bit. 2016, I get invited to Guatemala City to basically take part in a, a week-long think tank to build a film school in Guatemala City. The and you're invited and because one. you had made some films that had some success. You were kind of known in the indie film world and you played Sundance, Toronto, Kant, right? Some amazing festivals. Is sure. that why you get invited? I think that was part of it. I think a huge part of it was that uh, I went to UCLA film school, had graduated semi-recently and uh, also was fluent in Spanish and had mm -hmm. lived in Spain. And the univer the president of the university, he's an economist who I knew through my family. My family were, he's a family friend. He was a film, he was an actor back in his day, back in Spain. So even though he was an economist at one of the biggest and most important um, universities in, in Central America, in, in a private university in the capital, he, he, there was no film school, but he wanted a film school in his school. So mm -hmm. he invited a group of um, radio personalities, writers, uh, uh, theologians, lawyers, uh, actors, uh, sales agents, um, professors from all over the world, Latin America, US mostly, a couple Europeans, and basically said, we're going to pay you for your time for the week. We're going to build a curriculum. We're mm -hmm. going to build a curriculum and we're going to build a school. I got a grant that's going to, that's, I'm ta talking as him. So fast forward a year later, I get a call from the 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 um the head of the school saying justin we we built the program we got our funding we're starting in january of 2016 we'd like you to be the first professor of the school and we want it you we want you to what's the classes what are the two classes that you wish you had in film school that you never did we want you to design those and come and you have 100 percent freedom just you don't they don't they're not filmmakers they're not film professors they literally said pitch us a curriculum, come here to Guatemala. You can bring your wife. And <laughs> like, she was my girlfriend at the time. I ended up proposing to her at the top of a volcano in Guatemala. But uh, that was about a year later because I ended up basically living there for the next five, six years, half the year almost, because mm -hmm. every semester I'd be down there to teach my class. And through the course of teaching there and realizing that there's all these really um, passionate and interesting and artistic young people in Guatemala that really want to tell stories and want to make film. And there's no film industry down there. I realized that it was a great place to be. And my, my, I taught film in the United States, but it was so much more rewarding being there and showing like Cleo from five to seven to a bunch of Guatemalans that like watch their head explode watching these movies. And I could rewatch them for the first time. So my, one of my best students and one of my first students, Pe Pedro Murcia, one weekend invites me to his hometown. He's like, Justin, have you ever gotten out of the city? Do you want to see another part of Guatemala? My family has a nice house on the water. You can see another beautiful part of the city. And he, I said, sure. I went and I didn't know at the point, but he was kind of already conspiring to like convince me to maybe shoot something because it's so beautiful. Guatemala is one of the most beautiful cities, one, uh, countries once you get out of Guatemala City. Uh, it's volcanoes, it's lakes, rivers, jungle, beach, 
um, it's forests. It's 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 gorgeous. You could like they they filmed Star Wars in the, in the south of there. Yeah, the 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 third one with all the Ewoks. Um, so so uh, I I spend a weekend with him and his friends and his family. This is my student. He's like nineteen twenty at the time, and at the end of the weekend, he tells me that half of the kids that we were hanging out with, like Moonlight in 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 gangs, or they they're friends with people in gangs, and they were just people that were just in a bar with us or at a, mm-hmm. at a restaurant with us. And I started, it was, it was really fascinating to me because no one had ever filmed a feature there except for one scene of Tarzan in 1933. And it was pretending to be Africa. So I, I, I decided after that weekend, I'm going to, after I finished my classes every weekend, every, every week, I'm going to go back and just start meeting more people there. And because it's not far away and it's really fun to get out of the city when I'm not teaching, I started a Wait, little notebook. Who is now your wife at all concerned that you're going to go hang out with all these gang members every week? A little bit at first, but you know, here's another thing I forgot to tell you. And again, this goes to back to figure out what you have access to that other people mm-hmm. don't. My student, his father happens to be a very respected lawyer in town who's a cri- uh, criminal justice attorney who works, especially he's working with young people who used to be in gangs and are now trying to get out and get jobs. He represents them in court. So I had access through my student and his father to these kids who were really interested in doing something outside of crime mm-hmm. and outside mm-hmm. of that life. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, and they all owed a great debt of gratitude to the father of my student. Mm-hmm. So when he called them and said, hey, we have a friend in town. He's the professor of one of my son, and he really wants to interview you about your experiences and your life in Puerto Barrios and what you do and your past. And uh, don't worry, like, you know, he's not going to um, use your name, but he's really interested in maybe writing something about it someday in the future. And I wasn't even sure I wanted to make a movie. I just knew this was a really cool story and I was going to follow it. But mm-hmm. if I'm if, let's not let's not lie, I'm not going to be like cheeky with you. I was obviously thinking like this could make a great movie sometime and I'm going to follow it until I find out whether it will or not. And right. so I just and keep just, getting just access to, to people. Just to um, be specific, was were you like, was your process here? Like, let's explore this world first. Let's see the characters. Let's see the people. Let's see the dynamics. Let's see the relationships. And then you kind of started coming up with like a main character and a plot. Yes. It was literally that. It was literally, I'm going to talk to everybody that will have a coffee with me. And I'm telling mm-hmm. you, there were and certain the kids. coffee there? Pretty good, right? Coffee's the best in the world. And uh, that's all I have in my kitchen right now. But uh, <laughs> um, anyone that would have a drink or a coffee with me, I would do it. And there were some, definitely some scarier moments where I went into some worse neighborhoods. I went with people who I knew and I was always mm-hmm. with either... Pedro's father or Pedro ended up becoming a, a co-producer on the film, the finished film and couldn't have done it any of it without him because he, he cast all most of the kids with me mm-hmm. and he, he prepared them all for rehearsals. He shot auditions for that, but, sure. but all, all this to say, world, oh, would call him a fixer, right? Like you, you need a, like a, local, a local to be like, Hey, I just know where to go get groceries or, you know, whatever, like, like, any of, yeah, just like vehicles like a, and, but yeah, in this case, it was like setting me up on a secret yeah. coffee on the outside of town with a girl who had just joined a gang and didn't want sure. any. And and literally, this is this is my favorite one because it became the whole centerpiece for the film. A girl agreed to meet me, but she would only meet me just me. 
And, you know, my Spanish is good, but the, the slang there is like crazy. And mm-hmm. I was not allowed to bring a phone. I was not allowed to bring, she was just shy. She was just, she just, her, her and her brother had just joined because they were just trying to make extra money for their, their younger siblings. And she told me how her and her friend got into the gang. I was literally there with a, a notepad this big and I was just scribbling because she wouldn't even let me record her voice on the phone. And um, she told me that her and her friend, they didn't want to sleep with anyone. They didn't want to kill anyone. There's this other way that you can get into these gangs without the doing way. that. The third it, way. Uh, you have it's to. Called, it's called an Ansuelo Carnada, which is basically roughly translated like a bait or lure, which is hmm. basically you have to go somewhere in public where they have someone that they'd like to kill. And you have to pretend that you're going to sleep with them, whether that means you have to pose as a prostitute or flirt and bring them to a place nearby, like a hotel or somewhere where, where the, where the gang is waiting. So you're not killing anyone. You're not sleeping with anyone, but you can imagine the dramatic potential of coming up with something like that, where it goes horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm listening to this story, it almost clicks. I'm like, I think there's enough. If I come up with a cool enough fictional story where I can inject all these real life stories into it, change it enough to protect the, the, um, uh, identities of all these people and come up with something really cool that can, uh, tell some of the stories of the, the half dozen that I got just that, that month, I ended up getting, you know, hundreds and put them into some semblance of a three act structure. So to answer your question, Oren, yeah, it was collecting stories and then stringing them together and coming up with a fictional girl who has to go to this town to like join the gang and find, cause like Mm -hmm. I was like that girl, I was going from the city trying to figure out all the inner workings of the gang that kind of functions like a lower end mafia. Right. But I didn't know the rules. So Mm -hmm. this girl goes through it and I was like, well, let's have a girl who's fictional go to the, go to this town. And she has to figure out all the hierarchies of all the bosses and the initiations and the, 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 the weird control uh, dynamics of all the different gangs and all the different towns. And with her, we can learn as outsiders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that's what I could for the audience in that situation, basically. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm fully aware that this is not my culture and this is not something that I, I, know well but i think the that's why i think if you're going to tell a story i believe that anybody can tell any story i don't believe you have to be the same exact thing i think there are certain benefits to being the same because you can tell it but i do think that if you're not the identity of the group of people you are telling the story about it puts more responsibility and onus on you to tell it responsible to to tell it well and to do the work behind like that's why i spent four years researching it and finding the right people to tell their own stories and i was just literally there to make sure like um batting the ball left and right to make sure it went down the the bowling alley the right way Mm -hmm. just making sure the plot worked but there are literal scenes where i didn't write any of the dialogue at all and i can tell you about that later if you want but 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 I was just literally there to make sure that the story worked in, in two hours and didn't go off the rails. But I do feel that the, the structure and the way that the film was made empowered not only the actors who ended up playing versions of themselves or versions of their friends who were in gangs or whatever, but also the whole crew was Guatemalan as well. And everyone there, except for the DP and me and one producer, were all Guatemalan. 
Um, and it's a Guatemala, half the money came from Guatemala, you know, like, like we, we made a Guatemalan film, but I felt as an outsider, I also had the ability to give it a perspective where of an outsider so that it could resonate with countries outside of, outside of Central America, because they have the same questions, maybe like in France or Mm -hmm. in the United States that Mm -hmm. I did when I was coming into that, that environment and that community. So not saying that it was it was just as easy for me. It was definitely harder, and I had to go a much longer, circuitous road in order to tell the story. But I think at the end of the day, I arrived at a place where I was really empowering all the people who were in the film to have control over it and their dialogue, how they were portrayed, and like I always deferred to them. If if there was a scene, sometimes my script would say, "Well, the initiation they need to scare her." But I put next to it, like, how does that happen? Must ask actors and let them write it. Sure. <laughs> and, and then we figured it out in yeah. rehearsal. And then we I, shot I've it. written yeah. many scripts like that and uh, gotten very little interest in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> oh well this was already financed though i was like already like making it when i was writing sure, stuff like that yeah yeah well let me ask though just to kind of dig on in on this a, a, just a touch more because it's a thing that you know we think about on the show and talk about with people you know this this question of your personal stories versus your identity versus your voice as a filmmaker it's complicated stuff right mm-hmm. was there ever a moment where you had doubts you know oh, all you the thought, time. Oh, maybe maybe the, maybe i'm and tell us about that a little bit sure i mean it depends what you think of a personal film like I, if you mean autobiographical, absolutely not. And this is like even what I tell my students when I'm in Guatemala is I say, like, come up with a story that if you didn't exist, this it would never get told, mm-hmm. at least in this way. So that's what I think is a person personal filmmaking. It's you have a certain way you see the world or like in this case, access to a community that nobody else had. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my being an outsider in this town made them more interested in talking to me. Then maybe if I was a Guatemalan filmmaker, I don't know why that is, but maybe it brought this level of, oh, here's a guy who's actually just trying to tell a fictional story from Mm -hmm. another country. It's going to be a movie. But yeah, you have doubts all the time. Um, I think the thing that you fight through the doubts for is, is that spark that makes you so excited and realizing, I don't think that if I decide to abandon this, anyone else will tell this and in in this way like if i abandon it my next hope would be to get pedro who is you know now like 24 years old um Mm -hmm. to do it because he has access as well to all of these people through his father but i don't think you can just arrive in this town as a filmmaker and have the access to the stories and the reality uh and the the things that i got to see and hear and witness like I got to go to real safe houses, like real mm-hmm. gang safe houses, no recording device, nothing. I just get to go in and see them and ask questions as part of my research. Um, and so that to me is personal because I'm passionate about the story and I'm in a unique place to tell this. Now, a different person would tell it differently. But yeah, if you can fight through the doubts and realize that it's still worth it, um, I think that's a question we all have to answer for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. me, it's 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 with all three of the films I've made and the fourth one that I'm working on now in casting, 
I literally feel like it's like one of one. It's just an idea that's one of one, meaning, meaning I have to make them on much smaller budgets, but, mm-hmm. but they go to festivals and, you know, they get all knock on wood have gotten distribution and I've had close to almost 100% creative freedom on them. But it, I think all stems for, from me presenting to people of being like, if I, if I wasn't making films, this exact version of this exact story would never get made. So, mm-hmm. and like, I just think it's a way to differentiate yourself from like, there's so many people out there and God bless them. I, I, I just don't have it in me to just be like, I have a rom-com. I have a, I have a, I have a, 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 a crime caper. I have a buddy comedy. I feel like there's, there's, you throw a rock and you hit five people in, in mm-hmm. Los Feliz with one of those. But like, I have this thing yeah, that literally is one. Yes, probably. They're probably yeah. they'll just it'll ricochet off all the windows, you know. Yeah, like my one of one pitch was about these three actors that live in LA in like a white walled apartment, and mm-hmm. they're just, um, you know, trying to get work, and they're just like doing crazy things during the day. And here's the twist: this is why it's one of one. Hijinks ensue. <laughs> so. I um I I have a uh uh I have my checkbook right here. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. the- no, obviously I'm joking, but there is something there 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 is a thing I think about like a lot of filmmakers that are like I want to make a Tarantino film, you know, or whatever. I want to make mm-hmm. that true crime story. I want to make that rom com that it's or it's really, this meets this. It's this meets this. Yeah, it's this where it's this. really yeah. But I love your point of view of like what is a story that what do you have access to and what's the story that if you didn't exist would never be told. And I, I, I love that. And, it, and there's so much of, sorry to, to interrupt, but no, no, like, keep going. when you talk about this um, girl that you met that was in a gang, I'm sure, you know, you said you did three or four years of research. You probably had a list of like a hundred stories and it takes like a Justin mm-hmm, learner to say like, yeah. this is the story right. that's going to anchor it. And it takes a lot of strength and kind of confidence to, say, okay, I have these 50 other amazing stories that I'm not going to tell, you know, the things, the things I saw and, 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 and people I talked to that didn't make it into the final thing. It's like, I, I honestly feel like I should write a book or something. No, no, it's, it's unbelievable. And the, and the friendships that I've made with the people who stuck with me through the whole three or four years, through every rehearsal, through every location scout, through even the premiere we had in Guatemala. Like we set up an uh, NGO that will own a back end on the movie forever. And we've already to date gotten two scholarships for what's an NGO, an NGO game organism. (laughs) It's a foundation. It's a foundation that, that it's like a nonprofit, but it's, Mm. it's, it's set up. um, It's actually, this one is more faith-based, but, it's set in the town we shot in and mm-hmm. uh, it's run by the, the sister of one of my producers in Guatemala. And basically we, we found a way to, to, to have back end donated to the film in perpetuity and also um, find two scholarships for two, at least two of them and maybe more down the line, get uh, keep studying film in, oh, in, that's cool. uh, that's uh, and, uh, what my lead actor who we found right off the street, who is had a really checkered past and is doing great now, uh, just got his second acting role in a movie. I mean, there's not that many films that's shooting in Guatemala, but like, Orin, just to get back to what you said, I didn't want to make it sound like, um, everybody has to do that. I just found mm-hmm. like, if I was going to get out of film school with all of the, with, you know, with all of 
this like my short film and student debt and like the ambitions to make a feature, I was like, well, what can I offer that they'll remember that I just felt like that for, for me was more exciting than trying to like find something that was working already and just do my, like a copycat of that. And and so like, um, I went to my first feature, which I think Matt, maybe you saw. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. uh, It it was called girlfriend. um, I saw it like, kind of like right after we had met like there was a screening at, at ucla and it was one of those things where i invited you and you your invited, wife and yeah. like my wife is so thorough and diligent that she was like yeah we're going i would have flaked for sure um, <laughs> i wouldn't have blamed you either it's west yeah, yeah, side sure. it's it far like, away we, like literally we met each other like you know two or three days prior i think but i had moved like, in that week to, yeah, 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 to yeah, your apartment at the same time anyway the point is is like there was that relief of like oh at least it's good do you know what I mean? Like it's so rough. <laughs> Don't have to have ten years of awkward. Like, see you in the hall. Yeah, How's yeah, that like, going? Hey, man. How's that film stuff? Cool. <laughs> Keep me posted. No, but, but but I mean that started it is that I have a friend from high school who I grew up with who has Down syndrome and he's always wanted to be an actor and he's just a fascinating person. Regardless of him wanting to be an actor, he's a one of one personality. You will never meet anyone like him, but he he's charming. He's funny. He's strange. He annoys the hell out of me. And, and I made a film about him and it's not like any, I wasn't the first person to ever make a film with a character who has down syndrome, but he was so unique and so singular. And I never seen a film about a romantic story that dealt with love and sex in an Mm -hmm. adult way with someone with down syndrome. And I knew he would be game to do that. So I had this access to this unbelievable performer who just by virtue of being himself, I could, and I got, I literally got the money to make that movie showing a couple scenes from my thesis film, my thesis short showing how good of an actor he was and writing something all about him. And I had, I had the money like like two months after I got out of film school, it wasn't a lot. It you you you'd fall out of your chair if I told you how much it was made for. But how but I got to make my. I mean I mean I mean used car prices. You really want to know? Like like less less than three hundred thousand dollars. Um. Uh, yeah. Full, I, well, there's plenty of listeners at home who are like, yeah, yeah, okay, got it. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, good. I mean, but yeah. like, but then like, I I just I think also when you get to the festival and distribution game it also helps you stand out, right? Because mm-hmm. there's this thing that stands out in the mess of all the, the festival catalogs. So um, we had this standout performance from a young man with Down syndrome who gave this like beautiful touching and really um, emotionally honest and adult kind of like sexually um, uh, uh, frank performance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we premiered at Toronto Film Festival and we're like, they put his picture on the cover of our section in the catalog and we got distribution. And like, I think once you, if you devote yourself to something that you really feel like you're the only person who can make it, you're going to maybe make them for less money. And mm-hmm. there'll be a lot of struggle and a lot of more background work because you'll be the only one working on it for months and months and months. But at the end, you do have this pro- um, this this project that uh, stands out a little bit. And then I thought about that with, with this film in Guatemala. And I thought the same thing, a film about a girl who joins a gang in a part of the world that's never been put on film before. Um, mm-hmm. And in a place where 
it's very common for women to join gangs. That's not also a very common thing you see in movies. I've seen a few. There's like Miss Bala and there's um, Maria Full of Grace, even though that's not gangs. It's got kind of the same <laughs> themes, but I hadn't seen it a lot. And I just felt I had a new way in. And I just felt for me, that's personal filmmaking. It's not autobiographical filmmaking, but it's right. Even though you filmmaking. had a personal connection to this person discovering... And the place, like since 2016, Guatemala has been my second home. Like I, I, I've been there. There are years I'm there as much as in the United States, maybe, or almost as much. I proposed to my wife on the top of a volcano in Guatemala. I apologize if you can hear my dog working. You mentioned the word rehearsal a lot, which we, I think, think of at least in America as like this luxury you have when you have like money and time and every, all the resources in the world. Um, and, you know, you mentioned that you, you had a limited budget, though. I mean, listeners, if you watch this movie, it does not it does not feel at all like there's a scene yeah. we saw today where she walks into a club with like 300 people and dancing. Like, I mean, it's like cr- and the, and, it's a, without cutting. It's like a seven minute shot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, walking all around like wide shot, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it's it's a whole town that lenses, you're yeah. or at least three five yes. ratio. Like, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, it's not like like long lens close-ups with some extras in front of the lens. I mean, it's like the real deal. So my question is a little bit about both of those. Like how, like what kind of budget are you allowed to tell us that you had? um, And, and how does that, translate to Guatemalan filmmaking? Yeah. Yeah. The number's (laughs) less important than like what your crew size felt like and like what, Sort and of how do you get so that, many hundreds yeah. of extras and things? Like, do you just not clear them and you shoot in a live club, or like what? Talk, walk us through some of those kind sure. of more ambitious well, the, pieces. The club that shot that you're talking about, where she's walking into the club to look for the guy that mm-hmm. uh, she's supposed to lure to his death in order to get into the gang, and she can't find him. So there's like spies placed throughout the club that, in one long take without cutting, keep approaching her and whispering and helping her find him. That shot was probably the most expensive thing I've ever shot in my life. It might be more, that shot might be more expensive, have been more expensive, even though Guatemala is relatively cheap compared to the United States to shoot. It was a steady cam. We rehearsed it for, I rehearsed it for months, literally literal months with my DP and me playing the girl, like going mm-hmm. through the club. And we have seven shots like that. When in you the say movie months, you mean like you, you not every day for multiple months, but like you I'm talking back about it. every couple months, I'd go back to every location with my DP mm-hmm. and producer, and we'd take turns being the characters because right. we but, knew but you're we, pulling we were at your iPhone and like doing oh, always, like video yeah. boards and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah yes, yeah. exactly. But that's like bigger budget, I think, than even one of like all my short films I've ever made combined, like that one shot. Uh, at, you we paid everyone, everyone's paid, it's just that. The, the 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 rates like of production every there. extra you see on screen is your is being paid every person dancing in the club everybody everybody and they stay there they dance they don't care about the camera i love extras in guatemala they're not used to the camera being around they literally do not care they're just there having fun we're playing <laughs> music um we let them we let the music play the whole time i dealt with it in sound later um uh, everyone's getting fed. There's no sag. Uh, mm-hmm. I let me say, I know this will get me trouble someday, but I just, I loved shooting non sag. Uh, I could cast anyone I wanted from the street, anyone I wanted that I liked from the extras that I wanted to 
promote, like have a lot, like I, I, the door girl in the, in the club, coolest girl I've ever met in, in an extra situation. I'm like, I need you to talk to her when she comes in. You, mm-hmm. I want to give you lines and there's nobody like over my shoulder being like, you can't do, you know, like right, I, I just, right. I, I hate all those constraints when you're dealing with real people, you have to be ready to embrace the chaos. That's why we shot all the scenes with such long takes so that whatever happened happened and we wouldn't have to mm-hmm. like match it. And you, you could also allow the actors to go off book and say whatever they want. So in that sense, it, yeah, things, things cost money down there, but you can just get a lot more done. Um, one thing that was cool is like lunch is actually part of the 12 hour day and we never went over. You're not allowed. We didn't have budget for overtime. So we just didn't pay overtime and we never went over. And if we did once we had to like have like one grace and it was a few minutes, but we shot it for 30 days. We had six, five day weeks, which is like double the amount I get on an indie feature in the U S you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that that is incredible. This nightclub scene, it sounds like it's actually relatively conventional. It's just that, like, you know, you could afford it, which is <laughs> kind of the novel thing <laughs> of uh, yeah. this indie film. But there are other, there's another scene where, you know, a boy is like walking across a street and, you know, the it's like, it, it's nighttime. There's like all sorts of crosses and people moving and cars. Motorcycles and passing the car. Motorcycles yeah, passing yeah. Or, or, or there's also some other, you know, any sort of exterior. There's, a, there's an actual soccer game going on inside the stadium. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah, walks yeah, yeah, out exactly. past the taco trucks, the cars zoom by him and he goes across the street to a taco truck and yeah we closed the street watered it down we owned we owned everything like literally literally there are scenes in my film where we threw the actress into a real place and no one knew they were filming but something Uh that requires a steady cam where we're going from inside a soccer game outside past people picnicking across the street with motorcycles zooming Mm -hmm. those were all picture cars everything there was was choreographed in place i literally have on my iphone me being those little kids walking across the street from mm. seven years ago, just, and, and, and by the way, every time we would come back, the locations would change because this restaurant would shut down the change mm. owners. We literally had locations drop out night before because the guy sold his business to a friend and we just have to negotiate with the friend. And they're like, no, sorry, we don't want you to film here. So like, we literally just went through years of this and everything that you see in that, including the soccer game, we just hired two soccer mm-hmm. teams to play. That was madness, though, because that day, everyone in the extras decided they wanted more money than we had offered. And mm-hmm. so they, they, they orchestrated a mutiny inside the soccer stadium mm-hmm. and literally threatened everyone mm-hmm. that they were just going to walk mid-shoot. organized, Justin. <laughs> but but here's the thing i didn't know about it until we wrapped we wrapped that yeah. I, I was i was i was outside figuring out the getting across the street with the motorcycles mm-hmm. and um um but 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 in general though everyone and, was and really doing cool. those those giant scenes like that sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. but are you directing the soccer team are you going like you guys are playing you're winning you're doing this you guys are standing you're cheering you people are into the game you people are whispering like how detailed are you with you yeah yeah i had i had an assistant director who was like one of them she was she was colombian but she lived in guatemala she was both she's both the best and worst assistant director in guatemala (laughs) she's the only no she's the best assistant director i've ever seen in my life she literally was able to orchestrate every background person those kids just played soccer like we 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 tried to tell them what to do they're like no we're gonna play a game Mm-hmm. And the parents, the parents of the kids were all there screaming for their kids 
because they were actually playing a game. And we just luckily got enough of it as he was walking. It just needed to be background. It needed to be Mm -hmm. there. And when you devise a shot list where you're only going to do one shot per scene, whatever's in the background works. It's what it is. Yeah. Uh, well, and yeah. it's funny because I, I was like, I was wondering like, oh, is some of this just stolen? Right. Because there's a, it's a relatively quiet scene, right? Like your dialogue and these kind of these big tracking shots and establishing shots that we're talking about, there's not a, a ton of overlap, right? So like the club scene, it doesn't surprise me that you had music going during it because your lead is silent or things are easily dubbed. And I was like, oh, that's very smart. You you keep people in the moment, mm-hmm. you know, and, you, and no one's like listening to a click track or anything like that. They're just actually having fun. So it just adds to the atmosphere, right? Yeah, you. I kind of like was excited about creating the chaos of what mm-hmm. was there. And I'm like thinking like my job here is to get these people, when you work with non-actors and extras, I think the the, the thing I'm always thinking of is how do I get them so bored with me that they're not thinking about the camera and mm-hmm. forget that they're acting. So you can either do that by distracting them with mm-hmm. music and fun or a soccer game, or just getting them really bored and tired of like performing. And then they just are themselves. They just, just get over it. And, yeah. and, and, and I think that's what I did with the non-actors in the scenes. And like, I don't think you, uh, those clips are not in the the scenes you saw, but they're, their um, scenes within the house where I'd have all the kids in, in a, in a big scene where they're all talking and all doing stuff. And the first scenes are like a little big and they're, they're worrying too much. And then I just start pissing them off by doing it like 10 times. And they're like, is Justin ever going to let us leave? And by like 12, 13 takes, they're so over me and the camera that they're just being themselves and they forgot that the camera's there. And that's when I start seeing that they're just being, it's tricking them into realizing that they're, or remembering that the camera is there and, and just being, it's almost getting, wearing them down. And, and And is the dialogue kind of, you're just letting them kind of go. Like they're not worrying as much about hitting the dialogue super specifically, precisely. I, I, I developed this thing and I can't take credit for it. Um, I was, I was, uh, heavily advised and counseled and, and, uh, mentored as a strong, too strong of a word, but some, Sean Baker, who works a lot with non-professionals, gave me some of the best advice I've ever had. And it started in casting. And he said, don't do auditions. Invite people in and ask them to tell stories about themselves. Ask them to tell story. And you're going to start to see the ones that are comfortable in front of the camera mm-hmm. and the ones that are interesting. And you're going to capture their real personality. And then see if you can keep those people in the film not being too far from what they already are. And that's how I came up with the cast. And I even sent him like all of our additions and he told me which ones he liked and which ones he didn't or, or gave me Wait, some do advice. You prepare them? Do you say, Hey, we're going to have you come in and tell a story or do you just like, Hey, the director just wants to interview you and they come in and they're like, Hey, tell me where you're from. What do you do? We for literally fun? just would say, Casting for a movie, come in, no script required, just answer questions on camera. And then we would just literally interview. And if they were interesting, it would veer off into cool stories. And that's how I found my lead. He was he was um, talking about his life, working as a mechanic and fixing motorcycles. And then it got really dark. And he started saying about how he had lost his mother and he lost his father. And he took off his shirt and started showing us his tattoos. And he showed like my mother my mother passed away and I got this tattoo here for her. And Mm -hmm. then when my father was murdered, I got 
this tattoo here and when my girlfriend and um and you're like um okay but do you have clearances from the tattoo artist on these tattoos <laughs> well the thing is is when i saw him i was like i don't care if he's difficult i don't care if he can't do anything else he's he's the guy he's the male lead because mm-hmm. it was it was so hard he was 19 and he was telling me all this stuff and not only that but those exact that exact story is in the script i changed every piece of dialogue after he was in. And the thing that I started to do, and this is a little trick I have with non-actors, I don't know if it'll work with every film, but what I did was we would rehearse without a script. I'd tell them, here's what I want to happen in the story. Show me how it works. You're about to initiate a kid into the gang, but you want to scare him first. You want to really scare him and you want to make him feel like he's not in and you're going to do something. And then- Do you suggest blocking or anything? Nothing, nothing. I just say, here's the scene. How would you guys do it? And I watch. And after I watch, I start asking questions and soon they start to realize with my leading questions that they're being asked to show me and choreograph. And then after that, I kind of play with it. And what we do then is then we start adding dialogue and I'm like, okay, what would you say here? And then they just start Mm -hmm. saying it. And this takes a really long time. I'm like, I'm doing it. And then finally I'm recording the rehearsals and asking them to make up the dialogue. And then I go back to my apartment and my assistant and I, who speaks much better Guatemalan Spanish than me, we, they tell me everything they're saying. And I'm like that piece, that piece, that piece. I love it. And then I write the script based on everything that they've said so that the next rehearsal, they're given a script and every (laughs) word in the script is something that they themselves have said without me. So every word of dialogue in every scene is their own exact words but I've cut out all the the boring parts Mm -hmm. or the pieces Mm -hmm. where they were just like talking. And that way they're not improvising. They're reading a script, but every line is theirs. And this is how the dialogue feels so authentic. In my opinion, is that everything in every scene, including ones with the, with, with the professional actors that uh, when she's in the city, because they have their own slang, the sisters have their own way to talk. That's how I did it. I, I worked with an amazing um, acting coach in the city named Tati Palomo, who is a brilliant uh, director in her own right. And she, she, she specializes in non-professionals. And I just watched them improv and I filmed them. And then mm-hmm. from there, once there's a script with all of their own dialogue, I even let them go off of that. So like, like I wrote something in English, it gets translated to Spanish and then it gets tra- translated to Guatemalan Spanish. And then I tell them about it. They improvise it, change it all. I rewrite it based on the improv. And then the improv is gone, but they have their own lines. And then they change it on the day again and again and again. And I don't care because I'm only shooting minimal coverage. So this is this is all going back to the second. If you're going to make a film in another culture that's not yours and you're an outsider, I feel like this process allowed me to preserve the authenticity and their own voices without me, me getting in the way as minimally as possible. Maybe I wouldn't do this on an American film, but I'm going to try it on the new film that I'm casting right now to see if it works. I don't know if it will, but I really fell in love with this method because what it does is it allows them to improvise with all the, all the crap of improv that usually ends up being kind of bad. Like, are you ever in a situation where like, Oh, this shot would be so awesome. This window is here. This line is here. This wall is here. The dolly's here. The boot. And, and you have to, like, you can still move the actors and tell them to stand in certain places and hit marks, right? In oh, order of to course. Yeah, absolutely. So my cinematographer, Roman Casserole, are from Argentina, who I literally is the only person I've ever, like, blind wrote and, like, 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 
might have been on a might as well have been on a dating app and just said, I love mm-hmm. you. Will you will you, you work with me on into something? His DMs is what you're saying. Without the DM part. But yes, I found his email covertly and just wrote him and said, I don't know you, but will you shoot my movie in Guatemala? Um, Anyway, he and I developed a very flexible shooting plan so that no matter what happened on the day, it could be shot anywhere. So Mm -hmm. that like if we lost a location or something happened Mm -hmm. with the weather, it it torrentially rains in Puerto Barrios. It's a very tropical climate on the coast. We were just able to figure out a way to always have a backup plan. We have a climactic scene in a barber shop that is a 360 shot that lasts about five minutes in which which ends with somebody's chest exploding with bullets that we did it all in one take. Those have to be meticulously planned and there's no room for for changing. Mm-hmm. But if two people are in a dialogue and we're like, can we shift them out there because it's it's raining and it would be cool? To, yeah, we did that. And the actors would just have to adjust on the fly. Karen Martinez, who's like one of the most talented actresses, Guatemala, Latin America, America or whatever that I've ever seen, was just so nimble and almost was a co-director in certain scenes with me, helping me with the other people, performers in, in the movie. Um, so she was really, she understands camera blocking. She understands mm-hmm. performance. She understands editing, which was super helpful. And so, yeah, I was it's able true that when you call cut, she speaks with a British accent, like Michael <laughs> Caine. <laughs> man, man, She's she a, doesn't even speak. Brilliant. Um, there were I, some, there were some actors that spoke English, but very few. I mean, I was only in Spanish the entire yeah. time. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, uh, I love, I love this plan of, agility and nimbleness and you know grafting your visual style to the circumstances but i'm curious were there things that you learned not to do over the course of shooting the film like specifically in terms of adjusting non-actors right oren's point was like ah do you ever adjust the blocking to make it look cooler or or were you afraid to to touch things like were there things where you were like "Ah, i i just I shouldn't say this thing to this actor or like it's better for us to adjust rather than to them to adjust to us. Were were there anything? Yeah. Some people like they were, when you say louder and faster, they feel like, Oh, you're, you're giving me something to do and I'll do it. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, And some people are like, ah, louder, you know, like, okay, welcome to just shoot it. You know? Um, Yes. I, the thing I learned really quick is that I should talk as little as possible because I, I come I come into the set and I'm this guy who probably, especially with the kids in Barrios, I don't have the greatest slang in my Spanish. So mm. I know I'm going to go in there and confuse them with a note. So what I what I started realizing is shut up for the beginning and let see what they give you because it might be mm-hmm. great. And then if there is adjustment, like there's a 360 shot inside the safe house, Oren, in which one of the girls, one of the non-professionals, she kept messing up where she was walking and bumping into the camera. And all she needed to do was graze it so that we could get past her and get through because we're going 360 through the place. But we do the 360 pass like as she passes camera, we we reveal a new room and we're in a new room. But she kept missing it. And the more that I came in and tried to explain Mm -hmm. it, the more confused she got. And so what I tried to do is limit the people, the voices on set to literally one person. And it was usually either the assistant director who would come in and talk very calmly to everyone. And she was like respected by all and, and everyone and, and was like kind of the, the set mom and unbelievable or the DP who would just very soft spoken voice, 
chill sitting behind the camera just being like and again in spanish much spanish much better than than mine um you know uh hey you're you're bumping into the camera every time let's practice it here i knew that the more voices they had telling them things the the more mechanical it would be Mm -hmm. so it was Mm -hmm. almost like roman the dp would come out for me look at it on the monitor and be like what's wrong with it i'll tell them and i'd put all of my direction through him and then if there was something small, my my assistant director, I'd tell her, go talk to my 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 lead actress literally complained about I don't understand Justin when he talks Spanish fast. Because <laughs> he uses and and like she's he's like, I understand the words, but I don't get because you're you're sometimes talking like very um not literally, you're talking very figuratively right. about performance. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I need it quicker, I need it sharper. So I can mm-hmm. say that in Spanish with perfect Spanish, yeah. but it might mm-hmm. not mean that to her. So I talk, I talk to my AD and then she tr- literally translates my mm-hmm. Spanish into Karen's Spanish. The thing I learned is like shut up and and direct yeah. through other people when you have a huge group, especially with non-professionals. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I honestly I think that's true. In most cases, like, I guess I, what I'm saying is like, when you're young, you think that a director is supposed to come through and explain the motivation to everyone. And, you know, like you talk a lot, right? And especially when you're working with people who either are very experienced or, or just basically any actor, you just need them to to be concise and clear. And that's that. Right. So like Mm -hmm. you could give them a, you know, remind them of their backstory and this and that or whatever. Or you could be like, hey, scoot to your left a little faster and then you're good to go. Do you know what I mean? Like I've I've found that the one thing I've learned about directing now on my uh, through three features is so much of directing is learning when to shut up and not mm -hmm. talk, Mm -hmm. because sometimes sometimes you get what you want eventually. And if you try to telegraph it earlier and force it yeah they're gonna end up they're gonna end up getting there faster if you just let them find it and then you have to step in if you have to but nine times out of ten they find it without you saying anything because they figure it out and they feel it too and um i think i made a lot of mistakes especially early in Mm -hmm. getting in in their faces too quick too quick uh without without really understanding that the actor is gonna gonna figure it out yeah yeah yeah, a hundred percent. Well, so uh, I know we're running long, but I, I am curious, you've alluded to the size of the crew a little bit, mm-hmm. but uh, just on a practical level, talk to us a little bit about lighting. Like it looks beautiful. It's, it's, you know, you've got these, you know, it's widescreen. You've got like these giant epic vistas and like it's fluid movement everywhere. Um, and I was, I was racking my brain. I was like, there's kind of two ways to do it. I wouldn't be surprised if you were like, yeah, I have a giant crew and you know, there's this and that is happening or that it's mostly naturalistic lighting and like just being opportunistic about building the right shots because the coverage is so minimal. It's not like you need to do a ton to the image all the time. So tell us about like the visual approach. It was a little bit of both. I'd say we had a pretty nice, healthy crew. There wasn't like a time when we felt like we were undermanned. We had, mm-hmm. I mean, it was about as big of a crew as I've had in the United States. Um, like five grips, five electricians, kind of maybe like a little that. less, maybe a little less. We definitely had the gaffer always had at least two electrics with them. And mm-hmm. the key grip definitely always had two grips, sometimes three, because Brandon Lopez 
our actor who plays Damian in the film, who's won a Mexican Oscar for uh, the film he did in 2013. He also is a grip and lighting and has a, has a degree from a film school in lighting. So when he wasn't shooting on, he was either acting, <laughs> coaching or gripping the film. Um, I mean, hell yeah. Brendan was, was unbelievable. Like literally his days off, he was gripping that we was, he wasn't acting. It was unreal. Um, no, but like, yeah. And then we had a full cost. We had a uh, uh, costume department of two, uh, art department of four. The, it's weird in Guatemala. The art department is run. The production designer runs. It's one big department with costume in inside of it. I like that. That's so, cool. so there's great. a prop. We had a props an art director and, um, uh, like an all hands on deck kind of swing art PA and uh, first AD second on heavy days. We had a second, second um, mm-hmm. DP operated himself one camera the whole time. And we had a decent light one camera. I don't believe in anything else. I, I think that, I think that lighting with two cameras, it just takes just as much time and it looks, it looks not as good. What camera did you shoot on? Looks so. It so was an filming. Aeroflex Alexa, but we used old 1980s lenses from Japan and Germany mm-hmm. called CineVision. And the thing mm-hmm. about these mm-hmm. lenses is they're the all allied axis. Yeah, it's I mean, funny. The axis powers. The axis power. It's funny. I didn't know. I don't know whether they're German or Japanese, but apparently the inside of the glass is Japanese and the outside of the glass is German. Mm-hmm. So it's they kind were, of axis powers. It's some uh, some cool characteristics to those lenses, though, for sure. Everyone had a different yeah. blemish. There's yeah. one that I love that puts everything a little out of focus. That made mm-hmm. it feel like it was old film. Mm-hmm. Um, and the DP and I tried a bunch of stuff out. And the thing is, we landed on those widescreen kind of anamorphics because Puerto Barrios is so low to the ground, and everything mm-hmm. it's 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 very low and wide. There's no tall buildings. There's rivers, oceans, the, 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 the terrain, the geography is unbelievably widescreen. You can capture more in the mm-hmm. margins of, of um, every scene. And we're filming old hotels that look like they're going to fall over. And you want to mm-hmm. see they're, they're like two floors, but they go, they're sprawling, right? You have a river, you have ocean, you have um, woods, and it's all kind of low lying. And we wanted at any point to be able to play with the edges, extreme edges of the frame, like someone was coming to maybe hurt or kill Sarita. <laughs> in in a way, you can play a lot with with um, crowds and people and menace and threat and the thriller elements of tension and suspense with the with the scene and just the terrain in Isabel, which is the department in Guatemala where we shot is very low and very it's suit, suited to a widescreen look. I was really set on doing a 4-3 kind of more documentary type mm-hmm. uh, film because the approach of this movie really was the way you would approach a documentary where you're capturing real people saying whatever they want in situations where you don't know what's going to happen. But I got pushed by Roman to do these kind of more widescreen make it look like old yeah. 70s film because everything is very old looking there anyway. So it kind of, it kind of fit the look. Well, and I think to your point of like wanting to do like a different style of presentation to like how this world has been depicted. Right. I think like, you know, the bad version is like handheld and like kind of like gritty feeling, you know, there's like an elegance to the way that you shot. I've seen that too. And you know, I've I've seen that movie. I've seen the gritty handheld kids and gangs and 
Honestly, thematically, my approach was if I'm going to tell a story about this genre that we've seen a lot of, like, you know, gang kids and crime in Latin America, I have a different outlook on it is that I want to show the human side of these people who are caricaturized in American news as being evil devils. So why not give it a different kind of more picturesque, like ethereal kind of look? Mm Because these the, the the terrain is beautiful and these the these the the characters in the movie are really unique and different than we've seen in this context in in this genre so why not give it a completely different look a f- hard right turn away from like the the neo realist kind of docu style mm-hmm. gritty life is or tough even, it's like post neo realism is really what we're talking about it's like it's it's almost shaky cam you know what i mean like there's like the sicario of it all right like no disrespect but like you know we no, there's none we've, seen that. <laughs> we've seen that before no 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 disrespect to sicario is what i'm saying <laughs> no, I, but i agree i agree with you but yeah, I also i think yeah. you know half the time you see these handheld gritty like south american stories there built on a set at afi you know like sure and they're yeah. trying to hide that it's like Oh, well, and there's this there's this other there's this other um, word that people use in Latin America. A lot of my friends from Latin America who are filmmakers, they call it like poverty porn. Sure. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they're just our social miserabilism in order to like win festivals in Europe. Right. And Mm -hmm. and I was really aware of this when I was making this is that the context is this kind of lower socioeconomic background. But the story puts you and I try not to do any spoiling, but let's just say that when you go into this film, it has all of the the tropes that make you think that these gang members are going to be the evil villains in the movie. But when she gets there investigating her sister's disappearance, what you go in immediately to is that, oh, her sister was dating a guy in this gang. He definitely killed her. He definitely did something to her. But when she gets there and becomes friends with this gang and joins it and becomes part of their crew, let's just say without spoiling it, the least expected outcome comes. And maybe these people had nothing to do with her murder. And all of the preconceptions, including my prejudices, when I came to Puerto Barrios for the first time, are the same as hers. She went to this town thinking these people are evil. They definitely killed my sister. And guess what? When I got to know the people in this town, I was blown away by how much I, my own prejudices and ways that I'd seen them in movies and in the news had colored the way I thought about them. And it totally changed my outlook on the way that I saw this community. And Mm -hmm. I think that the movie also operates in that way where I'm setting you up to think that this movie is going to take you down that the the road of these gang members did something terrible to this poor girl's sister and maybe not and you're in for a surprise if that's the way you think almost like the one that I experienced when I started visiting and getting to know the people in this community so Justin if people want to find out more about Cadejo Blanco um yes what do they do i know it's coming out a, a day after this podcast airs April 21st. If you're in Los Angeles, the film premieres on Friday, April 21st at the Lemley NoHo 7 Cinema. Um, I'll be there with some cast and crew and some special celebrity guests who will be doing the moderation of the Q&As the whole weekend. 
Uh, we're definitely playing. Well, we're the not whole... doing the moderation of the Q and A, Justin. Yeah, it's weird. We, weird. Not all the invites haven't gone out. Gone out yet. <laughs> all the invites haven't gone out yet. Is it Sean Baker? Is he moderating the Q and A? TBD, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Um, by the t- by, you'll know by the time people are listening to this podcast, it'll be on our Twitter and our Instagram, yeah, yeah. which is Cadejo uh, Blanco's Instagram is Cadejo Film, and our Twitter is Cadejo Film, C A D E J O Film. Um, and yeah, we are coming out for at least a week, the 21st to the 28th at the Lemley NoHo 7. Uh, there are rumors that we'll get ex- may get extended a second week uh, to the Royal on over in West LA or at the NoHo 7 again. And um, after that, just check our Instagram because there are rumors that we might get a small release in Chicago, Austin, and New York, and Miami. So uh, it, when you say there are rumors, I mean, you can cut this out if you can't answer, but is it that it's contingent on things going well and you're going to go wider or that like, no, keep this in. If we get a good first week in, in uh, we're, let's just say our distributor film movement, who's a great indie and art house film, uh, foreign film distributor. They're talking to a lot of distributors in those four cities. I mentioned New York, Chicago, Austin, Miami. I think a cup, I can't speak with any certainty because I'm not in these conversations. It has nothing to do with me, but I've been told that they are keeping tabs on how we do in LA and we mm-hmm. may get a week in all of those places as well. That sweetens we, the pot. If it's like, Hey, this is doing great. Then you yeah. Know, let's open Cities with high sure. levels of Latin American population too, that sure, might sure. want to go see the cinema, go to the cinema to see a Guatemalan or Central American movie. Uh, we do have a uh, VOD release date of seven 11. I like the mm-hmm. uh, January, yeah, July 11th cool. for people that aren't in one of those cities. Awesome. Awesome. Well, check it out, everyone. And before uh, you go, Justin, do you have a few more minutes to endorse with us? Sure. Unpaid endorsements. In this era of connectivity, uh, screenwriting is especially hard because you're just distracted by your phone all the time. And we've talked previously about like sometimes I'll use a program called Freedom, which will like basically turn your Internet off and like lock you out of it. Um, but that's a little messy because it messes with your uh, Spotify or whatever. A technique that I've been using lately that has felt really good is that lately I've been printing out pages and then like making notes on them or whatever. But then... I keep my phone on, but I put it literally under the screenplay. And so uh, not the pages that I'm writing on, but like the other ones. So like I'm free to check my phone if I need to, like if it pings or, or I'm antsy or whatever, I need to text my wife. But the metaphor is explicit of like, I'm choosing to move my screenplay to check my phone. And just that little symbolic weight <laughs> is just enough to kind of you know it does, look everybody checks their phone but like the symbolism of literally you know hiding my screenplay and choosing to like move it off of uh to moving it to to check my phone has just been like a nice little reminder to like stay focused don't don't be tempted by it too much so so my endorsement is literally just putting your phone under your screenplay as a technique for, <laughs> for staying a little more focused. That's a good tip. My wife is a TV writer. I know you've had her on the podcast. She literally locks it in a box with a timer 
mm-hmm. her phone when she's writing that you can't you can't actually get in yeah. until the timer yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's a, it's a really more extreme way yeah, yeah. i like yeah, yours I a little it. better well uh, <laughs> honestly i used to do a thing where do you guys remember when starbucks used to charge for wi-fi this is like a no, long time but, ago but it was the good old days yeah and i would have my wife drop me off at a starbucks she'd go off to work for a few hours or something like that and i just would be stuck there without the internet and i just like i'd have to write and that was that and there was no i was in like the valley there was nowhere for me to go i could like walk to get lunch or something but like for the most part i was just like stranded this kind of crappy starbucks on ventura and i gotten the most writing i've ever gotten done it's crazy how how hard we need to work at not having the internet you know yeah yeah for sure Crazy. cool so lose your phone that's matt's endorsement mm-hmm. lock it in a box mine is like hey i've accepted that i'm gonna need to like be available for whatever period of time but i'm symbolically hiding it from myself so that i feel extra guilt if i check my phone for whatever reason mm-hmm. There's an amazing uh, coffee shop in San Francisco that only has dial-up. So if you want to look something up, you better really want to awesome. want to do it because awesome. it will take like minutes to load a page. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Uh, that's a great. That's a great tip. Yeah, uh, Justin, what you got, buddy? I have three very quick ones. I have an album, a book, and a film, and we'll do them rapid fire for you. But there are three things that I I can't go without. All right, so. The first one is a CD set of Claire Denise film scores. I can't tell you how I'm almost a little, little scared to ruin this secret I have because they're not even available on iTunes. I think you can get only half of these songs on Spotify, but I think you have to actually go on Amazon and find the actual CDs. Uh, there's a French band called Tinder Sticks that does all of Claire Denise film scores. They're some of the most beautiful cinematic quiet kind of like can be underneath your thoughts when you're writing mm-hmm. and each each disc has a different personality it's 78 songs over five hours uh six films uh and all the music from six of her movies from 1996 to 2009 uh one of them is so beautiful from the film friday night that i actually got married to one of the songs on the score of uh friday night it's it's all different one is kind of got a thrillery kind of feel one has like kind of more an ambient mm-hmm. one has a more dramatic one is more of a love story kind of anyway it's called claire denis film scores it's five cds find them buy whatever it costs on on ebay or amazon get it it'll become your background writing music. Um, The book I wanted to recommend is just an 80 page book by David Mamet about writing. That is one of the most useful books I've ever, I've ever read. It's called three uses of the knife on the nature and purpose of drama. It's unbelievable. You read it in a half an hour. And then the film I wanted to plug because it's the best film I've seen in the year. And I don't think anyone's really heard of it. And it's in theaters now as of the, this recording at a, at a few small art houses, is this movie Return to Soul by uh, Davy Chu. Don't read anything about it. It's one of the most pure cinematic experiences I've had in a while. When I meet, say that, I mean like I walked in knowing nothing on a rainy mm. night in Oslo at a film festival. And I sat there in trance for two hours. I could have watched three more hours of this story. 
you have no idea where it's going. It's one of those few films where you just will think about it for days after. And I don't know why it's Sony classics bought it. It's out in theaters. I don't know why more people aren't talking about it. It got nominated for a spirit award return to soul. Great film. Please find it anywhere, uh, VOD or whatever. So those are mine. Kaplan, what you got, buddy? I'm putting a video in the chat here. If you guys can watch this real quick, just a commercial, just 30 seconds. Should I watch it? Yeah. 30 second video. It's a commercial for the elementary teachers federation of Ontario. It starts with a teacher. I'm, I'm just saying, explaining out loud to our listeners. Um, it starts with, and you know, we'll post this on our website. Uh, but it starts out with a teacher handing a kid something in a classroom and then, uh, you know, a transition to some like outdoor place. And then we're like on a Mars planet looking mm-hmm. thing. It's And it's like and a, a teacher and a, and a class and they're like interacting with a few hand props and a few foreground elements. Um, but they're in have totally seen different this locations. No, I have not. But I have not I'm either. Gonna, I have a guess. You're going to guess. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I, I'm going to guess that there's a trick to all of this. And my guess is that it is either volume or rear projection. So they're, they're not. Right, so my question was going to be, uh, how many locations do you think they filmed this? Like, oh, vast my guess different- is going to be that the teacher's really dead. And it goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 At first I was like, is people. this all AI? Uh, but no, it's. It's just clever background swaps. So the second half of my endorsement is this other link. It's on Instagram. If you look up undefined.tv underscore, mm-hmm. they put a breakdown a BTS video of the scene of this commercial. Mm-hmm. And it is. Oh, it's cooler it, than I thought. It is 100% volume. This school room that the teacher is in and it's completely yeah. not there. All they have is the desks and the children. But even the ceiling lights are not there. Mm-hmm. The, um, the forest, they have some, you know, trees in the foreground. But the whole thing, it's, it just kind of blew my mind because obviously we know about the volume. We know about Mandalorian. We know about cars. We know about all these cool things you can do with it. But who on earth would pitch a commercial where it's a teacher in a classroom and then some kids on like, you know, mm-hmm. like a desert looking area and then... Uh, kids at the beach who would think like, Ooh, volume, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just done so well. I feel like it looks, it really fools you. And it's not, I mean, there is this part, cool transition to like space and kind of Mars looking Mm -hmm. place, but you, you could shoot that in a desert too, you know? just kind of graded a little bit. Yeah. It's it's, it's all your, your point is like, Oh, if you had a couple days, you could just do a bunch of company moves and shoot each of these scenes, one on a beach, one in the redwoods, one in a classroom, but they shot them all in one day, basically. Yeah. And I think we all volume. think about yeah. Unreal and like the complication of the 3D stuff, but here they just have like, it's just, you know, these real, I, I don't even know how they're doing the backgrounds, but it just worries me that I'm not even like thinking of this when I'm coming to pitch on a project. That's as cool. a solution, but it is obviously. Does a it help solution. that it's all really long lens, so the backgrounds are all kind of soft focus? Yeah, yeah, the backgrounds are sure, and it's and anamorphic, also, so you know, and none of the com- compositions need to see your feet. 
were all mm-hmm. like based on yeah. so the contact points of like the the giveaway the stuff that makes it super super hard is when the mandalorian is walking and they have to bring in all of the sand and then you know it's a nice big wide vista or whatever but like if you're literally just rolling in some rocks or some desks or some ferns and everything yeah. is for kind the of classroom medium, you do see the floor perfect. though Oh, I guess that's true. Yeah, that's true. But you don't see the feet on the floor, but you do see um, the desks and things on the floor. But mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. Like shooting in a way where you're not looking up or down is super helpful. But I, yeah, I don't know. I was just like, you know, you know, it's like the AI stuff, which I'm enjoying a lot. But I, I'm just like, are we are we going to have to be start dividing even more as filmmakers? Oh, here's the volume filmmaker and the AI filmmaker and the real story and the Spanish speaking, the Guatemalan, the gang and the like, <laughs> you know, you want to be the filmmaker that can make everything. But at some point, when, who, how are you ever going to win against the volume filmmaker or the AI filmmaker or the Spanish speaking Guatemalan filmmaker? You know, I think the the volume of it all, I think, is honestly just being facile with uh pitching it right like i think as soon as you can get your feet wet on it i think um it just becomes another skill that you have a great and tool I think, yeah yeah it's just a great tool it's in the same way that collaborating with a production designer who could build all of these sets or a great location scout that can help find all of the sets that you need you know like this isn't that different to me in a lot of ways yeah, I guess when the movie came out, I was also freaking out. I was like, what is like now there's no limits on where we can move the camera. And then, of course, like, you know, I've used one like maybe one time in the past yeah, like, yeah. five years. Yeah, yeah. Well, GoPros, cameras are so small. You're going to put 15 of them all over the place and cut, you know, like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Like, honestly, Orin, of all the filmmakers I know, I feel like you're the most ready to jump into Unreal anyway. Like random tools. Yeah. yeah, specifically a a new 3D tool like Big Whoop, man. Yeah, or this seems like your wheelhouse. This is something you yeah. should embrace. You would embrace. Yeah. You're you're yeah. the you're you're the wizard of these new tech advances. Anyhow, Justin, uh, thanks so much for coming. You're a wealth of knowledge. Congrats on the film. It's incredible. Thank you. It was so fun to see you guys again, and I hope at some point you can uh, I can meet your daughter and. Do you tweet or Instagram or anything where people should find you? Uh, I don't really tweet that much about anything but like the Celtics and the Clippers. But uh, I do have a Twitter. It's Learnstein, as in like L-E-R-N Steen, S-T-E-I-N. I have a private Instagram and Twitter. You can follow, I mean, Instagram and Facebook. You can you can just follow the Kadejo film and I will I'll pop up on there sometimes. Okay, cool. If you have questions, if you have comments, we'd love to hear from you. We're just shoot it pod at gmail.com. You can follow us across all social media at just shoot it pod. Maybe we'll put the links to the stuff I was talking about uh, and what we were all talking about on the website. Who knows? You can follow me. I think Noah has been doing a pretty good job of doing that, actually, Warren. Have we been doing it? Yeah. Every week, our, our unpaid endorsements are on the website. I think so. I hope so. I, I think they are, Oren. I'm a. Yeah. I'm a- I'm a listener and a yeah. 
Yeah, <laughs> shout out. Warren, you always give me a hard time about how like uh, no one ever is going to do your unpaid endorsements. No, like no, <laughs> when we heard the step and repeat one, we were both Googling like how much does it cost? $250? Like, yeah, like, but also, like oh, you know, when you hear a good one, like that someone, David Mamet one is really good. Yeah, it's a good one. That's a good one. Buy that book. 80 pages. Put your screenplay on top of your phone. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> you can hit us up across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. Uh, Oren, where are you on Instagram? I'm at O Kaplan. And uh, where are you on Twitter? I'm at Smitey Pileg. And I'm at Mr. Madenlo across all social media. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. It's produced by Tyler Spall. Thanks, Tyler. You, and you're listening to music provided by the Free Music Ar- Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.